Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Now, there's a saying that those who don't know the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. This is a very popular saying, to the point of being a cliché, but it's a very true and profound saying. Unfortunately, I don't think this is an idea that we pay nearly enough attention to. For example, I think one lesson of history that is widely ignored is, is that it is very common for societies of seemingly good people to embrace extremely destructive movements. Take Germany in the 20th century. This was a place that was called the land of poets and philosophers. It was the most intellectually respected nation in the world. American universities encouraged their scholars to go over to Germany to learn from the best and brightest. And yet in the 20th century, it committed some of the most barbaric uh, atrocities in human history. Or even look at the United States. It's little known that in the United States, Nazism and some of the ideas behind it, um, such as superiority of some races to another, the idea that we should breed and genetically engineer the right kind of of population, um, the government should collectively do that. Um, The idea that the Nazis also had about overpopulation all of these kinds of ideas led the led Nazism to have quite a bit of support in the United States. Now, going beyond that, the most murderous movement of the 20th century, the communist movement, was even much more widely supported in the United States. Communism was outright fashionable in popular culture for many decades in this country. And what I think this shows is that The fact that an ideology or movement is widely accepted and that the people who accept it are in many ways nice people does not mean it's safe. And that means that we always have to be on the lookout for what is the real nature of the movements that we are exposed to, the ideas that are are exposed to. When When we're taught that something is good and we see that something is popular, something like, say, the movement to go green, we can't just accept that this is good, we really have to think about it uh, critically. And as we've discussed on this show, I believe, and many of our guests believe, that the so-called green movement is incredibly dangerous to our way of life. It, in practice, opposes every form of practical energy, coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, hydro, and is therefore a threat to modern life and to progress. And as much as we've talked about this and, and I think we've made this point pretty well. It's still, I think, in people's mind on a pretty abstract level. It doesn't seem real that something could actually go really wrong or even that things really are going wrong, that there are millions of people around the world who are dying premature deaths because of green ideas and that in America, we're lit, many of us are unnecessarily impoverished because of green ideas. And in that vein, I think you owe it to yourself to read the amazing new book, Merchants of Despair by Robert Zubrin, which is about the ideas and consequences of the green movement today, 
but also about the ideas and consequences of the related movements for of the past for eugenics and population control, which go back hundreds of years. The history in this book, particularly the history of how these movements, like today's Green Movement, were regarded as scientific, were supported by consensuses, were uh, alleged consensuses of scientists, were supported by a government scientific establishment. These movements took actions that prematurely ended millions of lives. And from energy to biotechnology, Zubrin illustrates the Green Movement is doing the same today. Now, I started reading this book uh, two weeks ago, and I've since read it all cover to cover twice, and my, my Kindle is basically just one giant highlight because it's got so many great quotes from history and it, um, as well as analysis from the author. And I've been plugging this like crazy on Facebook and Twitter, not knowing that happily the author, Robert Zubrin, would agree to be on this show. So I'm super excited that our guest today is Robert Zubrin, and we're going to get to talk all about this book, all the important history and ideas that are in it. Now, Robert Zubrin is the president of Pioneer Astronautics, an aerospace engineering R&D firm. Uh, he leads the Mars, Mars Society, an international organization dedicated to furthering space exploration. Uh, for many years, he worked as a senior engineer for Lockheed Martin. Uh, his doctorate is in nuclear engineering, and he has an extensive scientific background. Um, and many other qualifications. That's his official bio. Unofficially, what strikes me about Dr. Zubert is that he combines an intense enthusiasm for science and technology with a deep interest in the history of the philosophy of the things that oppose science and technology. As he'll talk about in his own experiences working to promote science and technology, he ran against this opposition that didn't make any sense to him and in a very admirable way, he went about trying to understand it, and the result is this book. I hope you agree that this makes for a very interesting interview, and find out, stick around. We'll be back on the other side with Dr. Robert Zubrin. Oh, wait, one more thing. Stay tuned at the end of the show because I have a special announcement at the end about the future of Power Hour that you will not want to miss. Stay tuned, and we'll see you on the other side. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. Hi, we're joined now by Dr. Robert Zubrin, author of Merchants of Despair, Radical Environmentalists, Criminal Pseudoscientists, and the Fatal Cult of Anti-Humanism. Robert, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, as anyone who follows my Facebook page knows, I've been uh, plugging this book uh, all week, actually, before I knew I could get you on the show, although that was certainly a hope. Uh, I've actually read it twice in the last week, which is is pretty rare for me. Um, and I found it fascinating um, in many ways. Uh, and one is that it's an extremely philosophical book, and it, it draws very deep and disturbing similarities between the eugenics movement, which is now widely viewed as evil, the population control movement, which is mostly viewed as evil, and then the green or environmentalist movement, which is widely believed to be good uh, or at least benign. So it's a very philosophical book, and we'll get into the parallels. But I'm just curious, Robert, you're primarily a scientist. How did you come to these sort of very deep philosophical conclusions about um, one of the most powerful movements in our culture? Well, uh, by coming up against it, uh, I'm an engineer, actually, uh, originally a nuclear engineer, and, uh, you know, going back uh, three decades, uh, 
you know, running into a brick wall with the environmentalists blocking nuclear power, which was just amazing to me, given that here we were, we had uh, this vast source of uh, extremely clean energy, uh, you know, the thing that answered all their concerns about pollution and resource limits, and they wanted to stop it. And... Uh, and then as the years went by, I saw people with other technologies that would be breakthroughs for humanity, genetically modified foods, for example, that could end all kinds of malnutrition across the world, also being blocked by these people. These people say they're against spraying pesticides. The people invented genetically modified crops that had their own pesticides. You didn't need to spray them. That, you know, didn't, that could fix their own nitrates. You didn't need to spread fertilizer that they were allegedly all concerned about and so forth. Uh, in every area, they would block all solutions to the problems that they were uh, claiming they were concerned about. So, in fact, uh, apparently for them, the point was not the solution. The point was promoting the problem. Uh, and I, I read a lot of history, and, and as I did, I saw that there were parallels uh, to earlier uh, movements uh, which also strove to stop humanity from shaking off its chains. And, and not only parallels, but common ideological axioms. And, uh, and then it became very clear to me that what we were dealing with were not set eugenic movements and population control movements and environmental movements and anti-technology movements, but we were dealing with one movement, which is an anti-human movement. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I just have to say that's it's it's really refreshing because I mean my background is in is in philosophy, and one frustrating thing about um, dealing with people in the hard sciences is they're often not very interested in either political issues or the ideas, and, and certainly not the history uh, behind political issues. So it, it's it's just so great that this that this book exists. Now, one one thing I really enjoyed uh, about the book, and that isn't exactly captured in the title, which is understandably a negative title since it's about a negative movement, is your own enthusiasm for technology in particular, but more broadly just the amazing impact uh, technology, which in technology is really, you know, using human ingenuity uh, to change the planet for the better, for, you know, for the better for humans. It's just, it's just, yeah, what, what's striking to me is the history you tell about how in the very areas technology is, is opposed, namely population, race relations, and environment, technology actually has, made, what has and was making those things dramatically better. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, uh, you know, the, the problem with the anti-human movements is that it basically postulates that there's only so much to go around, and so the more people you have, the less resources there will be for everyone. But it's just the opposite. The more people you have, the more resources there are for everyone, because people are resourceful, which means full of resources. In fact, it is people that create resources. Okay, You know, uh, Malthus said population is going to outrun food supply, but the population is what creates the food supply. And even in Malthus's time, agriculture was so much more advanced than it had been in ancient times, which in turn was far more advanced than what hunters or gatherers could do. Uh, and 
in the time since Malthus, the world population has multiplied sevenfold, and people on average are eating much better than they were then. When Paul Ehrlich wrote his book in 1968, The Population Bomb, in which he predicted that the world population would double by the year 2000 and, 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 and everyone would be starving unless massive forced population control measures were taken. Well, in fact, massive forced population control measures were taken partially at his urging, and the world, but the world population doubled anyway by the year 2010. But yet people are not starving. People are eating much better today than they were in 1968. And not only that, you know, that much more of them have cars and color TVs and all kinds of things that people didn't even think about in 1968, iPods and iPads and, you know, and all the internets and all this stuff uh, so that we have the ability to communicate across the world. People create resources. You know, the, there would be no oil there was no oil until 1859 when Colonel Drake invented oil drilling technology. There was no uh, nuclear fuel until we invented nuclear power. You know, the, 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 you name it, there, there was no aluminum. Aluminum, the mo second most common metal used in our industrial society, was unknown to humanity until the early 1800s. People looked at things that contained aluminum and called them dirt. Uh, and yet we found it, we created it, and now we have unlimited supplies of this uh, ultralight, very strong metal. We create our resources, and the more of us there are, the more resources we're going to create. And one thing that's striking about that you mentioned with Malthus uh, is the issue that during his time, there was evidence that this as Julia and Simon would put it, this ultimate resource phenomenon was going on, that the human mind is the ultimate resource and that it turns raw materials into things that provide us services, i.e. resources. And yet Malthus and others ignored this evidence and ignored the fact that, as you point out, the past progress completely refuted his kind of pseudo-mathematical prediction, and yet they they evaded that. And I think that points to one of my favorite formulations in the book where you, you describe the underlying idea and you say, quote, it's fundamental thesis that human beings are pathogens whose activities need to be suppressed in order to protect a fixed ecological order with interests that stand above those of humanity. Could you elaborate on this basic idea of theirs? Yeah. Basically, uh, what they say is humans are vermin. They're out of control, and so they need to be put under control, which means someone's got to be in control. So fundamentally, it's an argument for, for tyranny and ultimately uh, genocide. Uh, and this is why it has always been appealing to would-be tyrants or for those who wish to uh, justify oppressive regimes. Uh, this is its charm. This is why it's been promoted from on high. This is why it's made fashionable again and again despite the fact that it has no scientific validity. Um, it, it seems in particular the, the idea of a fixed ecological order is, is, at least to me, that seems like a real uniter uh, among the three. I've heard other interviews uh, with you where certain hosts, I mean, you can imagine anyone who, who uh, sort of allies themselves with the environmentalist movement is going to be hostile to your 
thesis, although I think if they read the book, it's it's really compelling, the, the evidence that's presented. But one thing that struck me is if you look at all three of these movements, it's there's this idea of we're somehow going against nature and that's bad. So in population control, we're unnaturally overpopulating the earth. Um, with the whole eugenics thing, it was that allegedly we were unnaturally spreading inferior genes around the earth. And with then with environmentalism, it's that we're unnaturally transforming the earth. Do you do you see that strain among all of them? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, but this term "unnatural" is a uh, a verbal sleight of hand, because on the one hand, the word "nature" uh, it has a certain positive feel to it. You know, you you look at nature, you look at you know beautiful scenery and trees and birds and butterflies and and, and, and that, well, nature is good, okay? But nature is also uh, uncivilized, wild, hostile, okay? That people had to make their way in nature. When, if you really try to survive in the state of nature, uh, it's very hard and very brutal. It's a very savage situation. And the creation of civilization is an enormous achievement. Uh, you know, the replacement of, and not just the replacement of, 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 of certain forests with orchards that, you know, are, are filled with trees bearing fruit and, and, and prairies with farms that are producing food that can feed multitudes, but it's those things that allow us to create cities uh, in which First thousands, then hundreds of thousands, and now millions of people can come together, exchange ideas, and, and develop culture. So it is this battle against savagery that represents the progress of human civilization. You know, in, instead of celebrating Earth Day, you know, this week ago, we should have been celebrating Civilization Day, because this is humanity's great achievement. And it, I mean, it's it's very telling how the, as you put it, the anti-humanist view is exactly the opposite. That is, it, you you make the point that there are all these you know wonderful parts of nature that that we enjoy, and yet their conception of nature is not for us to enjoy nature and to improve upon nature and to protect ourselves from it. It's that they oppose every aspect of nature that is touched by human beings. So if there are more of us, then they're against it. Um, if you know, if we you know, if we build shopping malls, they're against it. If we split the atom, uh, they're against it. So it's it's the only part of nature they're against is human nature. Yeah, and the if if you view nature in its entirety, obviously it, it includes the development of humans and human society. Uh, no, what they support is the wild, the brutal side of nature because the whole point. This isn't about trees. Okay, this is about power. This isn't about weather. This is about power. This is about justifying tyranny. That is the purpose of this theory. That is the need that it meets. That is its market. That's who it's been sold to, and that's who, therefore, wishes to promote it. So, yeah, I want to ask more about that, because if you look at any tyrannical movement, you obviously always have the people who have an incentive um, where – if any movement says there's this problem, we need a higher authority to solve it, obviously whoever is in the position of the higher authority, they have a certain incentive. But then there's also the issue of why is there a mass 
uh, why is there a mass support of it? What what is it just that they're being maleducated, or is there a certain need of theirs that's being met by say the green movement today? I mean, if you look at people engaging in like very superficial things like recycling that's inefficient and the whole obsession with that, there's something that's going on that's not just power. Yeah, I mean, look, there there's power, and then it is. Uh, you know, how the stuff gets uh, promoted to people because uh, people uh, have their bad side and those uh, uh, with a certain modicum of power uh, uh, are not above using it uh, to those that they can put their boots down on. And so, I mean, for example, population control. is uh, a justification for uh, racism. And, I mean, you can see this. Let let me read you a a little section from uh, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. And you can see that underlying all the pseudoscience, and and we could discuss why it is completely pseudoscience, scientific fraud, uh, in in a minute. But I want to get to the gut feeling that's underneath it. And uh, Ehrlich reveals it. Okay, Paul Ehrlich, the author, he says, I have understood the population explosion intellectually for a long time. I came to understand it emotionally one stinking hot night in Delhi a few years ago. My wife and daughter and I were returning to our hotel in an ancient taxi. As we crawled through the city, we entered a crowded slum area. The temperature was well over 100. The air was a haze of dust and smoke. The streets seemed alive with people, people eating, people washing, people sleeping, people visiting, arguing and screaming, people thrusting their hands through the taxi window, begging, people defecating and urinating, people clinging to buses, people hurting animals, people, 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 people. As we moved slowly through the mob, hand-torn squawking, the dust, noise, heat, and cooking fires gave the scene a hellish aspect. Would we ever get to our hotel? I mean, the racism in here is visceral, visceral. And he says it himself. I understood it, okay, the population explosion emotionally, okay? This is the emotion that's at the basis of it. It's Uh, hatred of... I'm sorry, hatred of what? Of other races, it's 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 racism. Simply, I mean that that's the only way you can describe this. I mean, read this paragraph. It's all yeah. I I I found that paragraph um, very interesting, and I mean, I could tell that it was it was something that you that of all the horrible things Paul Ehrlich says that you quote him saying, I mean that 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 even was was one of your least favorite. Uh, I take from that those feeling it's the it's it's where he's finally getting down to why he's putting out all this stuff. Well, but but I think people (laughs) he doesn't like. Well, (laughs) yeah. So the people, 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 I think is is very revealing. But there's something about so part of the I think what in my mind, it's I have a slightly different interpretation in that if you look at, say, the conditions in India that he is pointing to, those are not conditions that we would want to live under. And those conditions are objectively inferior to, say, the conditions in the United States at the time. But the problem with Ehrlich is he sees something like this and he he sees it as human beings can't solve this problem. This is inevitable when we just do, you know, when we're free, when we're left free, as if India was a free place, instead of recognizing the power of 
human freedom and the human mind to alleviate problems as occurred when, as you talk about India's agriculture, multiplied dramatically, the standard of living went up, it became a freer country. His default viewpoint is um, the mind is inefficacious and and so we need to get rid of these people and we shouldn't even give them the chance. And I think that's, so I wouldn't call it primarily racism. It's 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 contempt for the mind and that seems to run across Contempt for the mind and just contempt for the sanctity of the individual. I don't. It doesn't strike me as racist. It strikes me as those. Well, he says, you know, India is one country who must let go down the drain. You know, he says uh, it's going to be brutal. Uh, I mean, there's all this stuff here. You know, it's like hard in my heart. Um, you know, it, it's really very much like the Nazi stuff where. They would totally brutalize various populations, Jews, Slavs. They 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 reduce them to to dirt-ridden skeletons, and then people would just look at them and say, "Oh well, uh, it'd be a mercy just to gas them, um, you know, cl- clean them off the surface of the earth." Uh, and that's uh, how this is. And and uh, you can say that by comparison with the Nazis, he himself did not reduce them to this plight as opposed to they who did to their victims. But nevertheless, his final solution was the same. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I, mean, I regard Paul Ehrlich as, as evil for this um, and many other reasons and certainly the things he advocates today in terms of, quote, solutions to catastrophic global warming would have a, a massive death toll as well. Um, and as we're talking about Ehrlich, that that connects to another point in the book that I found really enlightening, which is, you know, Ehrlich is a quote, scientist. I mean, he's a butterfly doctor, so he's not exactly, but he, he became this this famous ecologist. But throughout these three movements, the eugenics movement, the population movement, the environmental movement, one thing that, that you point out and that's particularly bloody and brutal with the first two and hopefully we'll, we'll, get, we'll minimize it with the last is how these movements use this combination of like a government establishment of science to oppress people and how, how the name of, and mantle of science leads to this incredible compliance and indifference by population to, to genocide. Right. I mean, as uh, Rudolf Hess, the number two Nazi, said, national socialism is simply applied biology. This is science. If you don't accept it, you're simply being irrational. This is the inconvenient truth. Okay, the inconvenient truth. The human race progresses by getting rid of inferior races, the inconvenient truth, the inconvenient truth that there's too many people in the world, that there's just not enough to go around, that some people are just going to have to starve, that that's just how it is, that there is no alternative to simply getting rid of these excess people. The inconvenient truth that it is impossible, allegedly, for the third world to develop and, and, and enjoy the same kind of standard of living that we in the United States and Europeans have because they would have too many carbon emissions. And you may want them to have a decent life, but it's just not possible. So harden your heart and accept the inconvenient truth. That's where they stand. That's what they always say. I found the Nazi example, um, the uh, the Nazi example, I should say, in connection with the American support of the Nazis and the whole eugenics councils to be just almost unbearable uh, to read. But I think I think listeners need to hear about it. Could you tell us about just 
how closely allied many prominent Americans were with the ideas and the practices that led to the extermination of, you know, 10 million people by Hitler? Sure. Uh, in the uh, 1920s and 30s, uh, there was in this country uh, a large movement called the eugenics movement, which um, was well-funded um, out of very respectable circles in the social register, the Harrimans, the Osbournes, which is a branch of the Morgan family, um, and others later, the Rockefellers. Um, they held uh, many eugenics conferences uh, here. Uh, they passed uh, laws. Uh, actually, they wrote the, the sterilization laws for um, invalids and deaf people and blind people and paupers. Uh, which were enacted in uh, about 20 states and then became the model for the Nazi uh, eugenic sterilization laws. Um, they did a number of other things, um, including uh, uh, prevent measures for wiping out pellagra, which is a, a vitamin deficiency disease affecting the poor whites and, and the blacks in the American South. But they really focused very heavily on um, immigration. Uh, one of the great Leaders of this uh, movement was a man named Madison Grant. Um, the, um, he wrote the book, The Passing of the Great Race. Uh, I'll just read you a section of it. Uh, he says, in the city of New York and elsewhere in the United States, there is a Native American aristocracy resting upon layer after layer of immigrants of lower races. It has taken us 50 years to learn that speaking English, wearing good clothes, and going to school and to church does not transform a Negro into a white man. Americans will have a similar experience with the Polish Jew, whose dwarf stature, peculiar mentality, and ruthless concentration on self-interest are being engrafted upon the stock of the nation. Indiscriminate efforts to preserve babies among the lower classes often results in serious injury to the race. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit, and human life is valuable only when it is used to the community or race. This is straight Nazism. And this book, which was a bestseller here, became a runaway bestseller in Nazi Germany. Millions of copies were sold. It was one of Hitler's favorite books. Um, the, uh, and this typifies uh, the views of the American eugenics movement. Another great leader of it was Henry Fairfield Osborne president of the American Museum of Natural History. And the, the and by the way, they were also founders of the environmental movement. There is a plaque today in the uh, uh, Redwood Forest in California today to Madison Grant and Henry Fairfield Osborne for their work in creating the Save the Redwoods League. But what they also uh, didn't want to save were uh, Jews fleeing Nazi Germany. And they um, pushed through uh, laws that basically um, banned immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, they were the immigration laws passed in the 20s were engineered by these people to prefer people of the Nordic race, and that's the term they used. Um, in the 30s, uh, when uh, Jews were trying to escape Germany, you could get out of Germany still in the 30s. You might not be able to take your property, but you could get out. If you could go get somewhere to let you in, they slammed shut the golden door. Um, and, and, and they were utterly horrific, and, and, and they were closely linked with the Nazis. Uh, you know, they held their uh, Third International Congress of Eugenics in New York City in 1932, just as the Nazis were coming to power. They are uh, uh, elected as president of the International Eugenics Society, uh, Dr. Ernst Rudin of the German Society for Racial Hygiene. He went on to be the Reich Commissar for Eugenics and wrote the race laws. 
uh, making a criminal offense for Jews and Aryans to, to, to uh, cohabitate. Um, I mean, here is, is what Rudin wrote in uh, 1940 about his good friend Plotz, also from the German Society for Racial Hygiene. Uh, it is tragic that Plotz did not live to see the solution of the problem of understanding and cooperation of the Nordic races when he believed so ardently in the purposeful leadership of Adolf Hitler and his wholly national and international racial hygienic mission. But let it be a consolation to us that until his last breath, he maintained an unshakable hope of a victory of conquest of the German race. And, and, and in the then ensuing peace, they would follow a victory of racial hygiene. Okay. Uh, you know, that's what these people were like. And uh, it was only, uh, frankly, the fact that uh, Hitler turned against England that forced the uh, upper class supporters of this, who were Anglophile, to uh, break off their support for the eugenics movement and, 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 and leave it adrift and uh, basically forced it to go underground during World War II. But the same people came out after the war uh, and popped up pushing population control. The founding meeting of the Population Council in 1952 reads like a reunion of the pre-war eugenicists. So in terms of, um, I mean, just one thing that, I mean, these, these stories are so horrific, but what, what strikes me as so ominous is that these were all as the global warming catastrophists would put it today, scientific consensuses. And that was that was such a major element of it that it's just, well, science says that the gene pool is degrading, so we have to do something about it. And Hitler is doing something about it. And you, you have a scene in the book, which is, I just, I can't even, I couldn't even believe it about Americans hailing Hitler, you know, American eugenicists going to Germany and hailing Hitler um, and talking about him as a hero, Neville Chamberlain talking about him as a hero. And it only makes sense in the context of realizing that Nazism is based on a certain philosophy and that particularly the left in America had a very similar core philosophy, um, particularly just the complete contempt ultimately for the individual human mind. I mean, I, I heard that thing about Polish Jews and I just – I was affected in particular because my, my grandfather was alive at that time, was – I mean, a borderline genius, quote, defective Polish Jew who was a physicist at MIT. So, and, but this is, this is, they have so little regard for individuals and yet, and to the point where they want to kill them and this, this fundamentally wrong anti-mind, anti-individual philosophy manifests itself in the, all this pseudoscience garbage. And then we go to, as you say, we've got the whole, um, population thing. Can you talk about that, the, con, you know, the, the consequences of that? Because that's even closer to the present. Okay. Now, I do want to correct you on one thing. Uh, it's just while uh, this anti-human philosophy is, is uh, mostly embraced by the left today, historically, uh, it has manifested both left-wing and right-wing costumes uh, as convenient to the time and place. Uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, both the Wilhelmine German militarism, which unquestionably a right-wing movement, was uh, very much uh, uh, derived its, its thinking from, from these postulates. Nazism, these pre-war eugenicists, most of them were, were would consider themselves men of the right. Henry Fairfield Osborne, Madison Grant certainly considered themselves men of the right. There were some leftists. Herman Muller was a Stalinist. Uh, but it's really, uh, they do a makeover in the 1960s. 
uh, of environmentalism, for example, which before the World War II was largely a cause of the right. It was lar- ultra right, in fact. Uh, you know, it was largely the form of, oh, what beautiful country this would be if not for all these ugly little shacks. Um, to, oh, stop the capitalists from using their insecticides. They're just trying to make money. We need to preserve nature against capitalism. It, so it gets reworked from, from, from left to right. Uh, as uh, convenient. And it it has worked ultimately much better. It made the sale on the left, you might say, um, in in our society for various reasons. Um, But it's been both. But uh, excuse me, I, I think I, I lost the track of the. Oh, no, that, that's fine. That's no problem. And and I, I appreciate the correction. I mean, I, I should have said, um, I mean, it's because it's really a statist thing. And, and when you go left and right is ambiguous, especially when you're talking about Europe. But certainly the people who want to control our lives, this is in various ways yeah. is going toward. And I was just asking about the continuation of this toward um, population control, because that's something that's had very modern applications that people might not be aware of and something that's very closely connected to the modern environmental movement. Sure. Uh, okay. So as I mentioned, uh, starting in the late 40s and, uh, uh, and then taking a, a real takeoff in the early 50s with founding of the Population Council under the aegis of uh, John D. Rockefeller and uh, Frederick Osborne, the, the brother of uh, Henry Fairfield Osborne and Fairfield Osborne, his son, who also wrote the book Our Plundered Planet, which uh, was a major launching point for post-war environmentalism in 1948, they set up the Population Council. Uh, another fellow, Hugh Moore, launches the campaign to stop the population explosion. He's joined by a General Draper, who, by the way, was run out of post-war Germany by his fellow officers for apparent Nazis uh, being soft on the Nazis, uh, being an obstacle to the denazification program in Germany. Uh, they launched this program. Now, by the way, uh, so that so now it's no longer polite to say, well, we have to get rid of these dark people because they're not Nordic. Instead, they say, we got to get rid of these dark people because there's just too many of them. Now, there was uh, both left-wing and right-wing rhetoric involved in this campaign. On the right, uh, they, they during the Cold War, if you want to sell something to the government, you sell it that this will help stop communism. And so they did. They said, we have to suppress the population growth in the third world because these are the masses that will join the communist world revolution. And, the, um, and on the left, it was, oh, we're so concerned about them because they're overpopulated. So uh, in uh, 1966... Uh, Draper et al. and uh, Robert McNamara, uh, who was a member of Draper's uh, organization, the Population Crisis Committee, uh, managed to engineer the putting through of legislation linking U.S. foreign aid to population control. And they and Paul Ehrlich, who by this point was on the scene, urged Johnson not to give uh, foreign aid to India, which it desperately needed, not to give famine aid to India unless they implemented forced sterilization programs. Now, this is very interesting because this was during the Vietnam War, and I think it was Joseph Califano, who was some functionary in the Johnson administration, went to Johnson and he said, uh, look, Indira Gandhi's coming over here. She needs the aid. What we ought to do is link the aid to India swinging to our side in Vietnam. And Johnson blew him off. He said, no. Okay, we're going to link it to population control. Okay, we're not giving any aid. So far from helping us in the Cold War, this actually was an impediment to to our success in the, in the Cold War. But nevertheless, 
there, there were those who propagandized it on that basis. Certainly McNamara did uh, and, and, and recruited uh, William Westmoreland, Ellsworth Bunker, and, and other Vietnam War personalities to campaign for population control. Um, anyway, so they did. Indira Gandhi capitulated and they implemented uh, forced sterilization programs in India in which millions of women and men were rounded up and forcibly sterilized. Now, of course, in India, given that the Brahmins were running the show, the people they sterilized were the untouchables. Uh, when they started doing it to Muslims as well, they uh, incited violent resistance, uh, which they put down with military force. Um, and then uh, this became the basis of U.S. Uh, AID uh, in, in scores of third world countries, making this a condition of our foreign aid, Indonesia, Peru. Um, various African countries, and in every case, it's always the local elites directing the the point of the population control at the people they despise. Hey, you mentioned USAID. I mean, this this whole thing where, and, and we really have to think about. I mean, these are all individuals who have. Just think about. You're not allowed to have a kid. I mean, or you're, you're permanently forced to not have a kid because someone has this idea that it's impossible for the world to sustain a population of four billion people. Um, you know. At a, at, back when it was, of course, that low. Now it, of course, can sustain way more. And one thing that struck me in all of this history is just how many of the organizations that are really murderers or torturers in this saga are still with us today and very prominent, including USAID. Yeah. And in fact, uh, this year, the United States will appropriate $950 million to fund population control programs. Wow. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. That's, um, yeah, and it's it's well, it's just a good place for Congress to start. Might be not appropriating that money. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's so it's so striking how you can just have this this false idea that gets this and that the government declares to be scientific, and then that justifies coercive imposition and then the population uh, is is complacent and that that really leads us to the modern environmental movement where, which you discuss extensively in the book um, and there's a lot more even beyond that to discuss where they are really they not only I mean they oppose nuclear power which is much of the exciting future of power and they oppose the only known present of power which is as you put it fire can you talk about that opposition sure. They want to ration fire. That's what cap and trade is, ration the right to use combustion. I mean, look, you know, in uh, 1972, Club of Rome says, we're going to run out of resources. We're going to run out of everything by 1990. But we didn't run out of anything by 1990. So now they're saying, well, uh, we've run out of the right to use resources. The issue is not that we are running out of oil, although a few of them still say that. But it's that we've run out of the right to use it and coal, which we're clearly not running out of. We've run out of the right to use that. Uh, we will ration the right to use it. So we will ration the right to use fire just as they wanted to ration the right to use resources or ration the right to people to have children or ration the right of people to have food. Uh, basically, it's about enhancing the power of the state to ration something. I mean, just imagine for a moment. Okay, in 1968, Ehrlich, in his book, The Population Bomb, said not only do we, should we force uh, sterilization programs on the third world, we should set up a Bureau of Population for the United States, and if Americans want to have children, they should apply for permits to the federal government, and in this way, we can restrict the number of children 
uh, to the number that we want and uh, and only from the right people. And the uh, now just imagine the enhancement of power of the federal government if that had actually become law. You would have to go petition the federal government for the right to have a child. And they'd look over your record and they'd say, you know, Alex, uh, we appreciate that you'd like to have a kid, but you, we, we, we looked at your podcasts and you've expressed a lot of views that indicate to us that you, you might not be the right kind of person to, to raise a, a child. Why don't you come back to us in a year and we'll see how you develop between now and then. You know, I mean, uh, it, the power to ration is the power to control. I mean, I think that one of the principal purposes of the one-child policy in China is uh, not just to limit population, but to enhance the power of the state over the individual in every level of their private life. And yes, if you're a very good person, if you're an informer, perhaps we'll look the other way if you have a second child. Okay. On the other hand, if you're not somebody who really plays ball with us, you have a second child, we'll, we'll take that kid away from you and do away with it. Yeah, and I mean, as, as is clear from the history, people are just all too willing to impose that kind of rule over someone else's life. And, and you know, po again, populations with the wrong ideas are more than willing to, uh, to let it happen. And what's so valuable about this kind of material is that it, it wakes us up and shows us parallels between atrocities that we recognize as atrocities in the past and then things that we're perpetrating now and that are on the horizon. And, and the last one of those I want to talk about was one that that I used to study pretty intensely on the philosophical side, but I, I hadn't kept up with, and that is biotechnology. And, and can you talk about just the amazing inspirational possibility with even just genetically modified foods and the nihilistic opposition to that by the green movement? Yeah. Uh, look, except for wild-caught fish, all the foods you eat are genetically modified. Uh, you know, the cattle, the the, the chickens, uh, the corn, you know, the apples. All these have been bred over centuries by people to make them uh, much bigger, more nutritious, more tasty, what have you. Uh, and uh, with However, with modern-day genetics, uh, we have been able to do breeding of new strains, uh, not in, in the fairly blind and, and, and somewhat random way that people had to do it before, but by looking directly at one of the qualities of certain plants that you actually want and cross them with another and create much more nutritious crops. Uh, so, for example... In the third world, okay, the, the diet of the poor around the world are cereals. This is what is the cheapest bulk food that there are. Uh, but these foods lack uh, vitamins um, that you get from fruits, vegetables, and meats. And so uh, the poor around the world uh, suffer extensively from various vitamin deficiency diseases, one of which, for example, is vitamin A deficiency. Um, vitamin A is plentiful in carrots and somewhat in some other uh fruits and vegetables, and even meat, but they don't get it. Well, we found a way to put the gene for producing beta-carotene, uh, the thing that gives the carrot its orange color and its vitamin A, in rice, and they call it golden rice. 
and it grows just like any other rice, except it's rich in vitamin A, and anybody who eats it is not going to suffer from vitamin A deficiency. And millions of people around the world go blind or die every year from vitamin A deficiency. This would end it. Yet the European Greens, whose flagship is the German Green Party, which incidentally was created by former Nazis, who themselves had all kinds of food fetishes, um, uh, they say, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't be allowed to do this. And to stop the third world countries from doing it, they've had the European Union pass legislation that allows it to ban the import of crops from countries that use genetically modified uh, plants. And, and in other words, not just import the imports of the genetically modified plants, but all imports from these countries. Now, these third world countries, they depend upon the income from agricultural exports to Europe. And so most of them can't cross the Europeans on this. And so they do not allow the use of golden rice and various others of these genetically modified crops that could greatly alleviate the distress of their people. Uh, and so this is an incredible operation where these European Greens, on the basis of their ideology or aesthetic considerations, if you will, are stopping the implementation of life-saving, health-saving crops across large swaths of the world. They're literally taking the vitamins out of the mouths of people in Africa and Asia who desperately need them. Yeah, and this is this – is, uh the only thing I've heard of that's that's close to the level of their op- on, of evil in terms of and I mean evil literally of their opposition to energy and then their opposition to DDT, which you, we don't have time to get into now. But definitely, when people read the book, um, read um, Robert's account of DDT, it's it's just an, I mean an incredible achievement. And then there was just such just such a nihilistic um, destruction of it. So I'm curious. Having written this book, um, which I think everyone should read and which I think is just just this tremendous historical resource and puts together everything um, so well in a way that I, w- I study this for a living and I just learned a tremendous amount from it. What has been the general reaction that you've gotten from it? Well, the book has actually only been um, published three weeks uh, and it's getting a pretty strong reaction uh, you know, it, it's selling uh, pretty well on Amazon and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, I've been invited on about 50 radio shows, uh, and uh, people are pretty struck by it. Uh, it is interesting, though, um, that in the radio shows, I've been generally been getting a, a very uh, strong response from conservatives, from Catholics, from um, pro-technology uh, people. Uh, but there's a certain group of liberals who I got a very strange reaction from, and it was, uh, I I was actually shocked, which is that when I was discussing this population control stuff and about these forced sterilization programs, several uh, liberal radio hosts uh, would start denying it. They said, well, you you have no proof of that. You have no proof that they're doing forced sterilization in Peru and India. I said, what are you talking about? This has been in all the press. Said no, no, you have no proof, and 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 I said, look, this is a Holocaust, and you're denying it. And then suddenly, it struck me that I was dealing with Holocaust deniers, literally, literally Holocaust deniers, and uh, and not deniers of a historical Holocaust, which should not be denied, but one that is going on now and which 
could be averted by people taking action. And uh, the blandness of this and, 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 and the moral, the immorality of it, um, it, it would just, I was just floored. Yeah, I, um, I don't know if this is one of the ones you're talking about. You don't need to call out the host, but I just want to comment on one of the ones I heard with uh, with Brian Lehrer, who uh, in New York, whom I've heard do other things and have respect for him as a host. But what, what struck me about him, and he's clearly a liberal, is that he really did not like the idea that today's green movement could have ideological similarities with the past, or indeed that it's any of its scientific claims could be tainted by ideology. And then if you, you point out something like, well, the genetically modified foods, I mean, it's it's scientifically proven that, you know, quote, you know, I mean, that we need to genetically engineer foods to live, that all of these things have been genetically engineered. There's no safety risk, that there's all benefit, that the risk is on the side of we're letting millions and millions of people die or, and get sick and blind. And, but people don't like the idea that their green ideology, which amounts to we should minimize our transformation of nature, they they're, they don't want to admit that that means death for people. And then when people actually act on it and people die, they don't want to see it. So they don't want to see that there's these population control. They don't want to know about the people who died for lack of DDT, the people who died for lack of golden rice. And what what frustrates me is that it's uninteresting to them. They don't – and I hope that the better people who subscribe to this will see these examples and see the, the, the parallels and not not deny them, not be able to ignore them because it's very powerful. Yeah. I mean that's it. They simply do not want to see the consequences of their actions. They don't want to see what happens when you deny golden rice to people suffering from vitamin deficiencies. They don't want to see the, the misery of, of, of millions of people getting malaria because they deny them the, the pesticides that they need and, and so forth. They just simply don't want to see it. And um, But the proof is there. So last question I'll ask is just about the, the concept that you chose to characterize this movement, which is, is anti-humanism, which um, has a lot of resonance with me. But I'm curious how you would connect that with something like communism, which is the most murderous movement of the 20th century and, and maybe of all time. And would you put them under anti-humanism? What's, what's the commonality among the anti-humanists that either includes or excludes the, the communists? Well, there's a commonality in that they are both collectivist. Uh, and one uh, metaphor that I find a, a constant refrain among these anti-humanists uh, is the idea of humans as a cell in some larger body, such as the race or the biosphere. Okay. And you, you find this metaphor used by Galton, the creator of eugenics. You find it among the Nazis. You find it uh, the Club of Rome. You, you find it, you know, it says the earth has cancer and the cancer is man. You, you, you find it with uh, Ehrlich and Holdren, you know, who, uh, uh, you know, use this repeatedly. You find it with the uh, Gaia people, uh, you know, in the global warming movement. And the, the essence of this is, okay, if, if humans are just cells in this larger body, if they only exist for what they can do for the race, well, then they have no rights. They, they are expendable. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they can be cut out, just as, you know, the Nazis always talking about, you know, the Jews being a bacillus invading the body of the vault, you know, or... Uh, 
you know, Paul Ehrlich, a cancer is an uncontrolled multiplication of cell. The population explosion is an uncontrolled multiplication of people. Okay, we must shift our efforts to the tr from the treatment to the cutting out of the cancer. Uh, you know, kill the infection, say the Nazis. Cut out the infection. Uh, cut out the cancer, says Ehrlich. Uh, you know, the earth has cancer. The cancer is man. Uh, you know, we have this abortionist up in Boulder. So the human race is a malignancy upon the earth. Uh, and uh, I, I think such uh, metaphors are also... Uh, uh, endemic among communism as well. Uh, the uh, difference is uh, that, well, until recently anyway, <laughs> communism was pro-technology. Uh, I mean, historically it was uh, the, the shift of, 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 of the so-called Marxist movement to embrace anti-technology nostrums uh, to basically try to get gate receipts from the environmentalist movement is one that has made a bad movement worse, um, if that's possible. But yeah, to, to, to move it in the direction of something more like Pol Pot. Yeah, I mean, the collectivism, um, I mean, any, any collectivist movement, I think, is going to be anti-human. And I think um, with the communists, it's really interesting because they, of course, I mean, they, they have many parallels in the term, you know, they talk about scientific socialism. They have this whole mantle of science. And what they do is they appropriate the the comforts of uh, the, the, the products of capitalism and of individualism, you know, namely technology. But, I mean, of course, in practice, they're completely anti-technology because ultimately they're anti-individual which means they're anti-mind, and that's how you get something like Lysenko controlling all of agriculture um, in in Russia. Um, so, but anyway, I was just curious about that from a from a philosophical perspective. Okay, well, we're almost um, out of the hour, but I want to give you a chance. If there's anything else you think people need to know about the book, and then tell us where we can learn more about the book or what else we can do to promote it. Okay. Well, first of all, the fundamental point from the book is this is we're not in danger of running out of resources. We're in danger from people who say we're running out of resources. We're not in danger from overpopulation. We're in danger from people who say that the world is overpopulated. You say the world is overpopulated, that's basically an incitement to genocide. You know, the Germans uh, were never in a problem because they didn't have enough Lebensraum. Their problem was they elect did people into power who said they didn't have enough Lebensraum. Um, and, uh, and that's what this is. That the, our wealth doesn't come from the land. It comes from people. People are the source of all resources. People are the source of all wealth. Okay, um, people are not the enemy. It is those who say people are the enemy who are the enemy. And where can you get the book? Well, in, in many stores and, of course, on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Um, any, any websites you want to recommend to people for, your, for well, your other work or for your publication? Okay. Well, for Merchants of Despair, there is a website, MerchantsofDespair.com, uh, where we also have, uh, you know, assembled various podcasts and radio shows and uh, some TV interviews and so forth people can look at there. Uh, I've also wrote an extract from the book called The Population um, Control Holocaust that was published in the New Atlantis and which can also be accessed there to get people can read that and get a flavor of, of what the book is like. 
All right, great. Well, I'm out. I want to thank you for coming on the program, but uh, most of all, just for for putting together this incredible resource. And uh, I know I know I've gotten quite a few people to buy it so far, and, and we'll get as many as we can. So, Robert, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Our hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Thanks again to Dr. Robert Zubrin for joining us. Definitely make sure to get a copy of his book at Amazon.com. Again, it's Merchants of Despair by Robert Zubrin. Um, as I mentioned, this is a really philosophical book, and philosophy is, is my first area of expertise. So I want to talk a bit about this philosophy that he calls anti-humanism, both what I think is the positive antidote and then hopefully shedding a little bit more light on what this view is and why people hold it. If we step back and look at what has made Western civilization so amazing, and when I say Western civilization is so amazing, that doesn't mean that every aspect of it has always been amazing. Uh, far from it. I mean, the Nazis and the communists grew out of Western civilization. Uh, but it goes to what are the elements of it that led to the greatest parts of it, such as the United States of America, such as the scientific uh, revolution, the enlightenment, technological revolution, industrial revolution, biotechnological revolution, uh, computer revolution, widespread pursuit of happiness, more than doubling of the human life expectancy, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the two essentials are um, a belief in human reason and a belief in individualism. The belief in the power, and those go together. It's really about every individual's life matters, it belongs to him, and he has a mind that can intelligently figure out how to best benefit his life. And because his life belongs to him, he has a right to exercise his reason. And if we look at our Declaration of Independence, it's chock full of reason and individualism. It talks about the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what recognizing those two things did was just bring about the most amazing transformation in human history. I mean, we had almost stagnation for thousands and thousands of years, relatively speaking, and this incredible explosion of productivity. And the key to it was that individuals who had once been bound to some sort of collective or some sort of government um, were allowed to maximize their potential by creating as much as they could possibly could in voluntary cooperation with others who were creating as much as they possibly could. And what became clear was that the individual human mind and the combination of individual human minds could lead us to a world of greater and greater progress. And of course, while there were bumps on the road, I would say mostly based on vestiges of, of collectivism and anti-reason and bad government policy, the direction was incredibly, incredibly good. And I think we have to look at the movements of population control, eugenics, and environmentalism in that context. In the context of life was getting better and better and better due to reason and individualism, and yet there was this mass at least among intellectuals, this mass opposition uh, to these movements, which should be really disturbing. So if you take something like population control, we talked about, a bit about during the show with Thomas Malthus. I mean, he's writing about how the earth can't sustain a certain population, 
and therefore how coercive measures need to be taken. And, and he says things like, yeah, you shouldn't give charity. You shouldn't help alleviate people's suffering because it's a losing quest. He's saying that even though the evidence is starting to mount, that human technology makes it possible to support an indefinitely large population. And certainly over the next century with the Industrial Revolution, that becomes completely clear. And yet people are opposing it. Or if you take something like eugenics, eugenics, what this, this, um, I mean, this forced sterilization and then even forced extermination of certain races, what it's cashing in on is the fact that there are many, um, I think the objective fact that many people deny that not all cultures are equal, that many, um, you know, there are many barbaric practices around the world, just for example, female genital mutilation in, in different parts of Africa. But what they do is instead of saying this group of people has not yet learned reason and individualism and a proper form of government, they ascribe it of all things to their race, which if you know any history is just the stupidest thing in the world because at different times people with different colors of skin are either relatively the most rational people in the world or completely barbaric. So you have times when the Muslim world is you know, the most civilized part of the world and times when it's the most uncivilized part of the world. And you can pretty much, much mix and match there. So if we look at the real developments in history, what's going on during the time of eugenics, which they're degrading as this decline in the gene pool, is actually overall an advance in reason and the availability of better ideas to people of all races, which brings out the fundamental truth about race, which people should know, which is that it's a non-essential characteristic because the fundamental thing uniting human beings is that we all have brains. And you can talk to anyone of any race who has any kind of education and perceive that fact. Now, you might not, might not always agree with any given person, whatever their race's views, but it's just such a, such a plain fact. So again, reason and individualism, where practiced, were leading to a great, um, you know, a great advance in in civilization. Um, in the but the the anti what I would say the anti reason movement was still hanging on to this idea that human beings, not all race, you know, race somehow defines human beings, and really this idea really amounts to the view which Ayn Rand described that human beings are like stockyard animals, and that really what makes you good or not is your breeding. And in the book, Zubrin has this horrific quote from the oh-so-progressive New York Times, I believe it's from 1895, and they're talking about the death of, of Frederick Douglass, who was uh, a brilliant uh, um, you know, former slave, um, who's obviously black. And in that article, instead of just recognizing this as a brilliant individual, they point to the fact that he has... Um, some mixed race in his heritage, which is very common uh, uh, among black Americans. And they ascribe all the benefits and all the genius of him. I mean, I'm laughing because it's just so absurd to the, to the white part of him. And, and they, they say, well, he could have been an even greater genius if only he hadn't been um, so much black. I mean, this is just like a total bizarre reading of the situation, but it comes from not really valuing the human mind. So with, with population control, uh, in a population, we've got this view that, well, human beings can't 
you know, they, they're stupid. They can't figure out how to have children responsibly. They can't figure out how to sustain those children if they have them. But all the free societies prove that they could. And the race thing is, is human beings don't really have minds. They just have different degrees of animal breeding. And so we should get the best. How can we allow the bad ones to breed? But in reality, human beings have minds. And the only, quote, breeding decision should be made by free individuals pursuing their unhappiness. And with environmentalism, you get the same denigration of reason and individualism. What they're saying is that, that your life does not belong to you. It really belongs to nature, and in part because you're so stupid and short-range that when you use a plastic bag or what have you, it's, quote, destroying the planet in this unprovable way. And the whole history of environmentalism is just this series of scares and scams um, that are all, quote, scientific, which, as we're population control and eugenics, showing that, that ultimately leaving individuals free to use their minds is wrong. Um, and this is really the, this common thread. And, and so what needs to be instilled above all to combat these kinds of movements is a reverence for the individual and the power of reason. And if you realize that, you realize that no matter what kind of problem comes up, the solution is going to be more individualism in technology. Even if there was a real problem with an, a near catastrophic global warming, the solution would be some form of technological uh, free solution. It would not be um, a bunch of dictators you know, telling us uh, how to live our lives. And it certainly wouldn't be any kind of assault on the idea of, of transforming the planet, which that whole opposition to having an impact, the thing that they oppose the impact of is human beings, which means ultimately it's the human mind. The human mind is choosing how to change the world around them, and they are ultimately against the human mind. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this whole set of philosophical ideas is, is um, I think giving credit where credit is due, and I think more than anyone in the world, Ayn Rand has been done a complete injustice on this issue um, and is the hero that we should study on these questions. If you just go to AynRandLexicon.com and if you look up, um, if you look up the left, um, she'll talk about the new left, which is this modern environmental version of the left. Or if you look up um, the issue of mind and all the anti-mind movements she talks about. This is someone who in the 40s, 50s, and 60s is identifying that all these, quote, scientific movements are really ultimately anti-scientific, anti-reason, are going to lead to disaster in practice. And she is completely denounced for it. She's called simplistic. She's called stupid. And all these people are the people who were in favor of this. And if you read Merchants of Disorder, you'll, say, you'll see these organizations who were in favor of eugenics, who were in favor of population control, organizations like Sierra Club, World Wildlife Fund. These people have, have these people are held in high esteem. And Ayn Rand is regarded as some sort of like intellectual primitive. And yet, if you read her work, especially read Merchants of Despair, then read, you know, The End of Atlas Shrugged or reread, um, read the book, The New Left or Return of the Primitive, You'll just see how dead on she is, um, which should be intellectually very illuminating, but I think also should really make you appreciate um, how much of a hero it is for, and how much of a hero she is and how much of a hero people who respect reason and individualism are throughout history because they have been opposed furiously, been called all kinds of names, and yet the, the few people who stood up 
are the reason why, you know, I mean, they did as much as possible to minimize the atrocities and to make possible the amazing things um, we have today, even though they were completely mistreated by the culture. So hopefully going forward, we'll have a culture with more reason, more individualism that treats those who stand up for those ideas, not with contempt and scorn, but treats with contempt and scorn those who deny and oppose the, the glory that is the individual human mind. So that was a bit of a, of a monologue there, but, but this book I think is, is incredibly important and I think it's, it's incredibly important to, um, to really understand as deeply as possible what's going on with these movements, how they work, what makes them possible so that we can minimize their impact and so that we can replace them with alternatives, alternatives such as what I call the industrial progress movement as well as pro-reason, pro-individualism movements in other fields. Now, last thing, I mentioned there would be an announcement, so here it is. If you, the audience, want it, we're going to start doing Power Hour weekly. Hopefully that excites you. It excites me uh, for a couple reasons. One, recently, uh, I've come to – I know people have liked the show and, and benefited from it, but recently I've been talking with a lot of people, including in various energy industries, even students, writers, and I've – Time after time, people have told me, you know, of all the things you do, Power Hour, that's the one I listen to. That's the one I learn uh, the most from. One experience I had was uh, recently when working with some new writers we have at Center for Industrial Progress who are writing blogs, writing articles for mainstream publications. These are mostly people from industry who are using their industry knowledge along with our philosophical knowledge and writing some really, really neat articles. Um, and I was really impressed by what they were submitting, how high quality it is, because it's, it's very hard to write, to learn how to write, to learn how to think and to organize uh, ideas. And when I asked them about this, many of them said that, that listening to Power Hour, hearing about all the facts from the guests, and also hearing about the, the CIP way of thinking about things and the, the philosophy behind it was really helpful to them. So if, if we can help new thinkers in the industry, I mean, to me, that is that is definitely worth doing uh, as much as possible. And then also, it, I mentioned industry. Um, people in industry are starting to listen to that podcast, and that's something I want to promote a lot more. Uh, and the more we can get that, I mean, I think that would be amazing because for people to be armed with facts, not only about their industry, but about the other industry, and then to be armed with the philosophy about how to defend themselves is, is super powerful. I think weak... Weekly is really the ideal uh, way to do this. Also, in relation to guests, since the beginning of the show, when we knew relatively few people, now we have access to literally dozens and dozens of super smart people that I'll meet on the internet, at conferences, etc. I mean, this month we had Robert Zubrin, uh, which is fantastic. Last month we had Pierre de Rocher, who got tremendous response and deservedly so because the guy is a human encyclopedia on all things energy industry environmental history uh, etc he's expressed interest in coming on the show again um there are people just from industry from academia from think tanks um and you know there's an and they've got so much valuable information that again com when combined with the philosophical pr perspective of the show i think makes for a unique experience they're also just 
so many important topics to cover. We, we've covered so many things. We haven't even had a show on coal. We haven't had a show on fracking. We haven't had a show on environmental legislation. Having a weekly show will allow us to deal with all those issues and also to deal with the issues that are that are most current. It can be a much more current show while still retaining that higher level uh, perspective. Um, and as far as your own experience goes, I think there are two benefits. One is you're going to get a lot more knowledge if the show is weekly. And at the same time, what's going to happen is we're going to build a library of audio go-to resources that you can share with your friends. And whenever they have a question about any, any of these kinds of issues, you'll have a really good place to go to where they can get experts breaking down the issues from the right perspective uh, in really, really clear uh, language. We'll also start excerpting the shows in smaller bites so that you know, people who don't want to listen to a whole hour can listen to uh, a really important five-minute section. One more thing we can do, given four or five episodes a month, is bring on more people who disagree and have debate formats occasionally, which I think is really will be really fun and really educational. I've done a lot of debates on college campuses. I know those get those are the things that get the best response on YouTube or sometimes if I debate Occupy Wall Street or Greenpeace, but really the most constructive debates are going to be with with real experts from the other side. Uh, and that's definitely something we'll do if we do a weekly show. So I think this is this is a no-brainer. I hope you think it sounds good. And if you do, if you want this kind of information weekly, here's what I'm going to ask of you. This is going to take us a certain amount of resources, but it's not going to take that much. If you just donate $9 a month, that's about $2 an episode. If 50 of you do that, that'll cover our baseline costs. If 100 of you do that, that'll enable us to really market this everywhere around the internet, um, you know, promote it in all kinds of different places, and I think really make this the leading free market energy show on the web. So if this sounds exciting to you, here's what I need you to do. Go to our website, www.industrialprogress.net. That's www.industrialprogress.net. There's a big button at the top that says donate. Click on that, scroll down, and you'll see one of the payment options is $9 a month. It's really easy to pay. You can pay by credit card. You can pay by PayPal. You can even pay by check if you scroll down uh, the page. But anyway, click on that and complete the checkout. Now, there are also higher payment options. If you want to click on those, that's fantastic. But the main thing is we just need a bunch of people who love the show to just give $9 a month. That'll totally take care of it. That'll make possible all of these things. If you run into any problems, have any questions, email me, email CIP at support at industrialprogress.net. That's support at industrialprogress.net. We'll get back to you. Now, just to be clear, what happens if we don't raise enough money, we don't go weekly? Well, I believe in you guys. I believe in the listeners of the show. I think you, from what you've told me, you get real value from this, and you know that others get value from it. So I think this is an opportunity you won't want to pass up. But worst case scenario, I will absolutely refund your money if we don't raise enough by June 1st. So that's the deadline, June 1st. If you want 50 episodes of Power Hour a year instead of 12, if you want all the different kinds of episodes I talked about, uh, professionally produced. If you want to take this show's reach and influence to the next level, again, go to industrialprogress.net, click donate and contribute $9 a month. That's three cups of coffee a month. I know, I know this is, is to at least a lot of you, 
it's worth that much. And with that, now that you've gone and done that, hopefully, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something, and if you did and think it's important information, please tell your friends and colleagues about it whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to me at alex at alexepstein.com. And to subscribe to this podcast or subscribe to the monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, go to www.industrialprogress.net, which has all the links you need. Make sure while you're there to check out all our new blog posts by the new and growing array of talented writers. Center for Industrial Progress is bringing on board. We'll be back in June starting, I hope, I think, our new weekly format. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only. 